Everybody be cool. You be cool. Bloodbath and Beyond, episode 19. I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. All right, Ramblers, let's get rambling, because today we're talking about Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's From Dusk Till Dawn. It's action and horror, it's horror and action, it's Bert and Casey, it's Casey and Bert. Blood, Bath, and Beyond. From Dusk Till Dawn, uh, I don't know what to say right off the bat, it, it's... Uh, it was a figurehead of my adolescence for so many reasons. <laughs> First is the obvious of uh, the location of the movie. And secondly, it was part of my obsession I had with Quentin Tarantino related anything. And this movie is very much a part of the Tarantino-verse with all of the included uh, uh, objects and uh, even a few characters mentioned. And it ties in also to uh, Desperado, but we'll get into that later. Although, erroneously, people often attribute him as the director of this movie, which is not the case. No, no, no. It was uh, by his good buddy, Robert Rodriguez. Who, who if, I'm, if I'm being honest with you, I was actually, maybe at the time that I saw, at the time before I saw this, I was more into Rodriguez than I was Tarantino, and I think that was because at the time I wasn't really allowed to see very many Tarantino movies. Which is funny, because Desperado is so much more violent than I, right? Tarantino's movies up until Kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> right, but yeah, it's because it's of bad words and stuff. Although, although when this movie came out, I, my, my mother had rented it because she loved George Clooney on ER. Yeah. And so she had no idea it was in this movie. And she actually let me watch up to the point where the titty twister, the the bar comes into play. And as soon as that neon sign of a person tweaking a nipple came came on screen, I, the movie got turned off and I was told to leave. Uh, I mean, not before that, though. There is a brutal murders of, and rape of several people in the movie. Yeah, you know, that you, you'd, you'd think that would have done it, but yeah. no. Keep, it, keep it in our heads in the right places. So for the uninitiated, from dusk till dawn is kind of two movies in one. It, it's a heist, like, caper crime film about two brothers on the run in Texas trying to make it across the border into Mexico. And along the way, they run into a family on vacation, on, also on the way to Mexico. They get the family hostage, or hold, hold them hostage, and they wind up in a bar, which, as it turns out, is run by a big squad of vampires. And so they have to survive from dusk until dawn. Not just a bar. I mean, let's make this clear. This yeah. is a this is a uh, a strip club of the highest and lowest caliber. This place makes the double deuce seem like the Emerald City. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, our doorman, uh, played by Cheech Marin, uh, his his name is Shet Pussy, <laughs> and he he gives he's. Uh, <laughs> He's the P.T. Barnum of Poon. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, he just gives the longest uh, vagina-related monologue I've ever heard. Uh, yeah. He is, he, is the, uh, he is the Spanish people versus Larry Flint. And you know what? He's one of, uh, at least at the time, he's one of the more benign characters they run across at this particular establishment. Yes. There's the bartender played by Danny Trejo, and it has one of my favorite lines where George Clooney walks up to him 
And he goes, oh, you serve food here? He goes, best in Mexico. I somehow doubt that. Because <laughs> it is such a scuzzy place. Um, there's a band. Dan- Danny Trejo with another knife-based name as a Charlie Razors. Charlie, yeah, this is just a year after Desperado. and What, what was his name in that one? Oh, it was uh, it was the Spanish word for folding knife, and I don't remember it off yeah. the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, you know, the great scene where he just keeps throwing the daggers into guys all over the place in that movie. <laughs> yeah, this this movie, it, like I said earlier, it goes from crime caper film to vampire picture, it uh, without almost any sort of foreshadowing. It just goes there. It just happens. The the tonal shift between those two segments is almost mind-bogglingly jarring. Like it it goes from a very serious seeming movie. I mean, it has it has. I mean, Tarantino wrote the script, so it has the typical like humor that he employs. But the level of the the level of uh, I don't know. I, I want to say their approach. Like, the level of writing there is just a completely different, cognitively dissonant thing. Like, it goes from, it goes from, like, the typical Tarantino heist Reservoir Dogs kind of experience to, within a heartbeat, becoming something that's on the caliber of uh, demons, which we talked about on this show before. Yeah. The, it's funny because the segue between the two scenes, or two movies, it's, it's two movies in one. Uh, is the dance for by uh, Selma Hayek as Santanico Pandemonium. <laughs> She's the star stripper of the place. Yep. And I remember in that scene, it's Tarantino's foot fetish. Oh, Probably that's the a... most disgusting scene. <laughs> yeah, it's like, did you see the table she was walking on? And she. You have to her... know, too, that Tarantino wrote that script like knowing like if i tell selma she's got to put her whole foot in my mouth man she's got to do it <laughs> um there's also scenes before with uh juliette lewis who plays the daughter of uh, harvey cattell as a preacher who's lost his faith she says and tarantino's character is a lecherous sleazy disgusting psychopathic murdering rapist and he's leering at juliette lewis's feet but he's st- but he's still the loving little brother of George Clooney's character, yeah. Who who seems shocked by his actions, but still makes allowances for it as family tends to do. Yeah, and knowing his track record, I was always I felt worse for more than pretty much any character in the movie is the woman that gets kidnapped early on, that's yeah. subsequently murdered by Tarantino. And we only see, like, little flash uh, glimpses of it. We just see, like, blood all over the hotel room, but we don't see the, the corpse itself. We just know something really, really terrible has happened. Well, that's part of the two movies in one thing, that the approach to violence is so, so different. Like, it's mm-hmm. got a more disturbing vibe. Yeah, sure, the, the the opening shootout inside the liquor store, it's pretty cool. It's definitely, try to, you know, there to get, like, your blood going. It's more action-oriented. Yeah. But it still has a more disturbing vibe to it. Right, like, like w- before we cross the Mexican border, the violence is treated as shocking. Yeah, so I, I do appreciate that the, the murder of that lady is treated as something uh, disturbing, because it is... Like, and morally wrong. Morally wrong, yeah. It's not meant to be, like, exciting or funny or anything. So I, I, I will give uh, Rodriguez and Tarantino credit. So mm-hmm. in some ways, I feel like this movie was co-directed by them, because... 
frequently on uh, the documentary, it's like a 90-minute documentary called Full Tilt Boogie, which is kind of serious, kind of not serious, but Rodriguez goes through, I was like, yeah, Quentin, man, when he's on set, he's just always there going, oh, no, no, man, no, Robert, you got to do that. It's like, no matter what he says, I always end up agreeing with him, even if I think it's a terrible idea at first. Like, he always gets his way with, you know, the way, like, a scene's going to work. Hmm. So. Well, yeah, I, so, I mean, yeah, I, definitely he's the kind of guy that if he's going to be on set. He asserts his he's, will. He's like uh, he Orson, well. or, Orson Welles in that respect. Like, that that's his thing, and Robert Rodriguez's thing is being able to get a project done, do all the bits of it, and do it cheap. Yeah. Which is why he's had the career he's had. Uh, this movie was made for $20 million. Uh, and even in 1996 money, that's pretty cheap. It's a drive-in movie. It's a drive-in movie. I mean, even the title references it. I mean, the the title from Dusk Till Dawn. I mean, it's it's the perfect uh, title for a strip club slash bar vampire movie. But that's also a phrase that used to be on a lot of drive-in theaters. Yeah, like it's not a movie to take seriously. It doesn't take itself seriously and has fun with it. And in many ways, it's... Initially, it seems like it's going to be a movie that takes itself seriously. I mean, that's part of the tone shift we're talking about. Like, we're we're along for the ride. We're along with the tension of them trying to cross the border and and how and what's going to happen to uh, the family that's, you know, been sort of pulled along with them because, you know, part of the Tarantino character's uh, mania, you know, we already know that he is he does awful, terrible things to women. I mean, we've seen it happen with the woman they kidnapped previously, and then we see his sort of sexual daydreams about the young girl, uh, Juliette Lewis, where he just imagines vividly that she's coming on to him to the point where, like, he brings it up in conversations to her and it gets sort of agitated that she doesn't remember the things he imagined her saying to him. Yeah, it's pretty creepy. I mean, I I will say, I don't think the movie has necessarily a... um... I think it's just like the genre change is so unexpected because it's like somewhat grounded in reality. I'll call it Tarantino mm-hmm. reality because I don't think Tarantino ever in his career, and I think he's even said it, he's only interested in uh, movie reality, you know, the way people talk. Like that same kind of like dialogue where people call each other real mean motor scooters or something. That, yeah. That's throughout the whole movie. Or, all right, ramblers, let's get rambling. That, that's a line from uh, Reservoir Dogs also. Uh, Tarantino, like, you know, H.P. Lovecraft or um, Faulkner kind of have their characters exist in their different works in sort of the same universe. Oh, yeah, shared universes are a pretty big thing. And I mean, we have one character that unifies this to both movies of the Grindhouse, uh, both the Grindhouse films and to the Kill Bill films. Yeah, Michael Parks. Um, and th- Michael Parks playing Sheriff Earl McGraw, who uh, you know dies in the beginning of this movie. So presumably this happens after all of the other Tarantino yeah. and Rodriguez movies. Yeah, in many ways, in. this movie is a precursor to what they would do with uh, the Grindhouse movies. Yeah, And I, I think I, this is the one I would come back to more often than Grindhouse. Planet Terror is kind of a mess, and Death Proof, sadly, is really boring for about, uh, about three-fourths of it. I'm going to disagree on both counts, but that's another episode. That's another episode. <laughs> but I, I think From Dust Till Dawn is a, is a more satisfying experience. So uh, let's talk about, I mean, the, 
we've talked about the sort of the the precursor and the lead up, but getting to this bar is, I mean, this is the highlight of the movie. Oh yeah. This is, so let's let's get right into the bar here because we have a we have a lot of characters that show up and a lot of just off the wall <laughs> absurd cheese that is just perfect. Mm-hmm. There's Tom Savini as Sex Machine, and some of you may know him as sort of the gore maestro from mm-hmm. uh, the George A. Romero zombie movies and uh, I think Friday the uh, Friday the 13th Part 4, so okay. future episode. Well, hey, and uh, also Howard Berger and Greg Nicotero appear as victims in the bar, mm-hmm. uh, and they are the uh, they're special effects maestros. They've done tons of stuff that you've seen. K-N-G-F-X. Uh, but most notably lately, they're known for doing all the zombie makeup in The Walking Dead. Yeah. Which is arguably some of the best stuff in that show. Um, I think Greg Nicotero is one of the executive producers on Walking Dead. So he's calling a lot of the shots in that show. Yeah. Not, uh, which is kind of rare for a makeup effects man to be in charge of that. Yeah, Nicotero pops up as uh, like uh, Sex Machine's buddy. And he has like a tiny whip. He wraps around his beer bottle. Yes, it's really strange. There's a lot of there's a lot of characters with little quirks and eccentricities in this place. Yeah, it's there's a lot there's a lot to take in, and even some, oh, we, some of the dancers. Have, do what? We also have a we also have Fred Williamson. Yeah, who is a uh, black exploitation icon and uh, pro football a, player. Pro football player, yeah. And a star of several black exploitation movies that I, as a white person, can never say out loud on or off a podcast. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Look him up, kids. Look him up. <laughs> so, I will say one of those was a direct inspiration for Django Unchained years down the line. Most definitely. Yeah, so I, I think definitely. his inclusion in this movie was probably by Tarantino's insistence. Well, uh, you know, we, we you mentioned that uh, Salma Hayek has the famous uh, snake dance yeah. in this movie, and uh, by her admission, she was conned by Tarantino, who'd written the part for her. I mean, and he probably wrote the part for her, wanting her foot in his mouth, but um, he'd written the part for her, and she almost didn't do it because she has a chronic phobia of snakes. Uh, but he convinced her that if she didn't take the part, Madonna was going to take the part. And if it was a part good enough for Madonna, she was going to want it. But Madonna had never even been asked. There was no – it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so uh, Selma Hayek went to a therapist for months to overcome her fear of snakes long enough to do this sequence. Yeah, I, I – you know what? It was helpful in the long run for her. Because I, not that Madonna was asked, but I couldn't see anybody else being Santanico Pandemonium. No. no. So, yeah. Well, I mean, th- let's talk about this. I mean, it's also been good in the long run for George Clooney. I mean, this was, before this, all he was really known was for TV roles. I mean, he was on ER, yeah. he was on Friends, he was on Roseanne. I mean, mainly ER. But, like, this was, like, the the breakout movie other than, like, in 87, he did, like, what, Return to Horror High? Yeah, I, th- I think it was this, and it led him to getting uh, Out of Sight, which is, I really think, the movie that kind of put him into the, oh, the yeah. big star category. Th- this movie did not make a lot of money in its time, so I'm not I'm not saying this is the one that catapulted him into stardom. But yeah, it got him it, more noticed as a leading it, man. 
it definitely let him break out of being a TV actor. Yeah. Well, see, Tarantino had directed an episode of ER. Ah, and I okay. think, I don't, I don't remember which episode it was off the top of my head. I'm not like an ER guy or anything, but I do, I'm pretty sure that that's how he was asked to do this role. Because they had asked a whole slew of other actors for the Seth Gecko role. I think even Michael Madsen, which I feel like he would have been totally wrong for it, and Tim Roth. I, I, like, pretty much the guys from Reservoir Dogs were asked. Steve, to... Steve Buscemi was asked to play both brothers and <laughs> didn't do either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tarantino, who's not a great actor. And this is his best role. This as is an actor, his best role as an actor. Yeah, I was about to get. Yeah, about to say that. Um, his his worst role, by the way, definitely the Australian. In <laughs> <Django> <laughs> that was so out of the blue and strange and terrible. <laughs> why, why is he Australian? His his accent work was not the best. <laughs> it complete. The, like the whole scene was like an, a Saturday Night Live skit. Like, and I don't mean that as a good thing either. But that's for another day. But 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 I I buy him as a dangerous pervert. <laughs> I do too, because it's like an alternate universe Tarantino, where instead of becoming a director, he became like a horrible horrible person. Well, that might not be too far from <laughs> yeah. the truth if some stories are to be to believe. Yeah, but he does become a vampire later on in the movie. Yeah, he's actually the he's the first victim of the vampires, isn't he? I mean, yeah, technically he is. Yeah, or not technically, he is straight up is because Selma Hayek kills him. Um, After he gets into a bar brawl, yeah, and that was one of those those little like technical errors because I've seen this, I watched this movie so much in high school. Uh, I noticed that the blood that's supposed to be coming from Tarantino's neck is actually from like a secret pump underneath Selma Hayek's hand, uh, so it's clearly squirting from her hand and not his neck. It's like, oh man. Well, I, I think this being the kind of grindhousey picture that it is, I I think they were like. People are gonna watch this once. You know, yeah. it's, they're not gonna pay attention to that effect. Yeah. But you've you've seen it enough times that you see. And you, but you know that even that adds to the grindhouse charm too. Yeah. I mean these sort of these sort of small, uh, cheesy practical effects. They're cheesy. They're, I mean they're charming, and the practical effects are really good. There's some mm-hmm. CG in this movie. That's, oh my god. That's really terrible. Anytime a face morphs in this movie, it looks awful. Yeah. The, the makeup itself looks fine, but the transitional morph is the worst. It looks like something from Sequest. It looks like something from Xena or Kevin Sorbo's Hercules. <laughs> it looks, yeah, it looks really bad. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Uh, speaking of George Clooney, uh, this is stuff related to, like, there was, like, an old collector's DVD. And one of the most hilarious things is George Clooney screwing up his lines. Because at the time, George Clooney was very well known to being a guy who could not remember his lines. Um, ah, so he wasn't always known as GQ's sexiest man in the he world. He wasn't like the mayor of Hollywood, always, you know? And <laughs> there was it's like, I think, the early uh, liquor store scene where he's like, says, it's like, I'm serious. And he just like pauses and he's like, motherfucker. <laughs> and he does it like 20 times. It's hilarious. It's, it's like performance <laughs> art. So if you can find that, uh, those bloopers, it's pretty much the best bloopers this side of like, you know, Jackie Chan hurting himself. I am going to look those up as soon as we're done recording. Yeah. So hopefully they're floating around. And um, also there, I've seen a, you know, good deal of the work print footage. Hmm. And the early massacre sequence in the movie was about, was probably twice as gory. 
they had to cut out a whole scene where one of the vampires, her ab, it's a female vampire, and her abdomen opens up and it bites a dude's head off. And you see her later on in the movie. You just see like a vampire with like a giant hole in her abdomen. She's all gross and zombie looking. I, I did see that. And I was wondering what that what was up. With yeah. That. So like that that had a practical purpose earlier, but it was edited out. And there was like a, a vampire that had a big zit on her face, and she pops it, and it like melts a guy. That's that's pure demons right there. Yeah, that's very demons. Um, too bad that wasn't left then. Wasn't wasn't also a uh, Selma Hayek's vampire? Didn't she have like a snake thing in her mouth that would eat heads? Oh, I don't remember. That might have been an an effect they had planned and just couldn't work out, and they didn't have enough time to shoot it. Okay, I'd only read about that one. Yeah. So, so I don't remember ever seeing that in the work print footage. There was also uh, Tom Savini killing a vampire biker. Who it's a guy with long hair, but the MPAA saw is like that looks like a woman, and you're stabbing her in the face over and over and over. <laughs> so we're gonna ask that to that be taken out. One of one of my favorite uh, kills in this movie is uh, Fred Williamson. He's you know he's a very burly dude, and he, they just show him grabbing. Uh, <laughs> A, like a woman vampire, like stripper vampires, and he's, he keeps grabbing them and just throwing them onto the t- legs of a table. Yeah, he flips until the table he's imp- over. Yeah, until he's impaled all four table legs with someone. I like his facial expression. To <laughs> I hate, I hate to do this. I hate but... doing this. He has one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, and that's that really strange "I was a nab" speech. Yeah. <laughs> I, came to my senses. I realized I killed the entire VC squad single-handed. There was blood and chunks of yellow flesh clinging to my chunks bayonet. Of yellow flesh. <laughs> to this day, I don't remember. And then he's getting my sex machine. <laughs> like, it's it's, it's all about his delivery. Like his delivery is so over the top and funny. Oh yeah, yeah, I can't do him justice yeah. at all. <laughs> Come on, sex just... machine. <laughs> yeah, like he he steals every scene he's in, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I was like, when he and Sex Machine buy the farm, I was always a little sad. It's like, no, e- you know, even watching the movie the other night, again, I was I was disappointed to see them go. It yeah. all came back to me. I, I really haven't seen this movie since uh, probably like early college, so it's been a little no. while. It's because of those quick changes, though. That, that's why I keep bringing up demons. Like, it doesn't take anything in this movie for you to be a vampire, like... If you're like Nick, you're a vampire. Some people I don't even remember getting bitten. They just are. Yeah, the movie <laughs> uh, or the script, well, what it, whichever serves the script best, uh, it depends upon how long it will take you to turn into a vampire. Right. If it's fun to just have you turn around and then turn back around and you're a vampire, then that's what's going to happen. Or if like you need to say some important dialogue, they'll give you enough time to be a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> For a, a particular Harvey Cattell character. Well, also, I, I enjoyed, you know, the, these characters. And this is sort of a pre-postmodern horror world. Uh, you know, some the characters are commenting about trying to figure out how to kill vampires based just on what they've seen in movies. Yeah, this is a movie that came out during that, right in the middle of that postmodern era. I think movies like Scream mm-hmm. and I Know What You Did Last Summer were very self or very referential movies. That was kind of the crux of the whole thing. And From Dust Till Dawn falls right in there. 
for me. Yeah, uh, there's that line. Uh, has anybody here read a real book about vampires? Or are we just remembering what a movie said? I mean, a real book. You mean like a time life book? <laughs> like it's a time. As someone who uh, who owned a lot of time life supernatural books, as a boy, I can appreciate that line even now. Uh, even Tom Savini's pretty decent as an actor in this movie, and because of that scene, uh, the kid brings up. Uh, putting two sticks together to use as a crucifix. Or... That's right, Peter Cushing did that all the time. Oh, Peter Cushing does it all the time. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I also enjoyed all the improvised vampire weaponry, including the, uh, the super soaker full of holy water. The one I didn't like was the jackhammer steak. That just yeah. seemed like too much trouble, it, like too clunky. It's like, you, could, you should just get a steak and just use that. You'd be better off. It was but just I, to have a, like a mechanical thing, just kind of. Sure, and I think the excess is the point by then. Yeah. Oh, jeez, can we talk about the band real quick? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you know, we we talked about how Tarantino has joined all the universes, but hey, our band leader joins this movie to Roadhouse. Yeah. As you yeah. mentioned last episode, I mean, we have we have Tito from Tito and the Tarantulas. He was the uh, guy in the first band in Roadhouse. And now he's here, and the other members of the band include uh, the drummer is the drummer from Oingo Boingo, uh, the old Danny Elfman project that I adored, and um, Robert Rodriguez is in the band as well. Yeah, he's playing guitar. He's a pretty good guitarist himself, because like, he grew up in Texas and everything. There's a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan on the soundtrack. I just remember yeah. hearing that. And if you want to hear more of Rodriguez's music, his band Chingon does the... Uh, Song Malaguena Salarosa on the uh, I love, Kill Bill. I love that soundtrack. Oh, I love that uh, song especially. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, so anytime between 1989 and 96, Tito found his way to the Titty Twister. That's right. Yeah, he's he's moved up in the world and and he became a vampire. I like I mean, that he's... their instruments. As soon as everyone's like all vamped out, <laughs> turn into humans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they they turn around and already like they have a they have a guitar that is made of a man's torso, his head hanging where his butt would be, and like his leg <laughs> with with like guitar strings tied to it. Yeah, it's got like the pegs in there and everything. It's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> okay, I, there's the, the one of the most absurd parts of this to me. I still can't really rationalize it. Is the bit where they say uh. They say, let's kill that band. And he goes, fuck you, everyone. And, like, just immediately just explodes. I love that line. Savini says, now let's kill that fucking band. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of, like, the... You you mentioned, like, all, like, the improvised weapons and stuff at the end. I feel like kind of the end of the movie, it almost falls apart because that end action scene feels like it's so... It's trying way too hard. And it's all like, if you just look, it's all the vampires just kind of hanging around in the background, just kind of dancing. They're milling around like uh, the putties in Power Rangers. And they're just sort of letting George Clooney walk up to him with, like, his jackhammer gizmo and kill him one at a time. And then, like, the kids are kind of doing their thing. But it's it's not like Wild Bunch where there's, like, just chaos in every direction and it, it, it works. It's just that... It feels a little too choreographed, and you said it perfectly, like, they're like putties. You could even see one of, like, the costume vampires in one shot. He just kind of, like, casually turns around and walks like he has to go to the bathroom. Like, I noticed this because I I watched the Blu-ray on a, you know, pretty big TV the other day. So, like, good God, they really shot this scene in a hurry, didn't they? Well, you know, that's, I think that's kind of 
probably exactly what happened. They had to shoot it quickly. Yeah. They had to shoot it cheaply. And, you know, Robert Rodriguez is the guy that'll get it done if you need it done fast and cheap. Also, they had a lot of people to put into really elaborate vampire makeup. Right. And, that's, and uh, they were I'm in sure full that... body suits, too. And I'm sure that took all day. Yeah. So they probably had very little time to get those actors who sat, well, I don't know, six hours in a makeup chair each to choreograph big, long action scenes. So, I mean, I'll, I'll let it pass, but for the most part, but that, that would be like my big problem for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you just have to sort of enjoy the excesses of seeing a bunch of vampires get killed. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I have that problem too. I mean, it's, the, the the staging is not elaborate. It's not even as elaborate as your average zombie movie necessarily. Yeah. Uh, you're just kind of enjoy, you're just kind of enjoying the absurdity of the situation, but you're not so much enjoying the uh, the execution of it. Yeah, it's kind of a nice little. Uh, at least when they they emerge from the uh, storage room, it's a little. It's like a reference to Assault on Precinct 13, and even the boy Scott is wearing an Assault on Precinct 13 T-shirt. Mm-hmm. So and John and uh, Robert Rodriguez is an admitted huge fan of John Carpenter. He even said that Escape from New York was the movie that inspired him to make movies. Yeah, but who doesn't love John Carpenter? I'll, I'll tell you who else I really liked in this movie. I really liked uh, Harvey Keitel as the uh, preacher who lost his faith. Yeah, yeah. For I mean, so many actors I've seen who are from up north, Robert De Niro included can't do southern accents to save their lives. It sounds horrible. But Cattell does it like... I think he does it kind of softly. And I totally yeah. bought him as a Texas preacher. He kind of sounds like Robert Duvall. Yeah, he kind of does like, a little bit. I bet he based his performance on him, even. Yeah, but I, I, I dug it. Yeah, I think he, he did it naturally. It didn't feel phony. Yeah, like, I can... If you see Taxi Driver and he plays, like, this absolutely vile, like, Brooklyn pimp, and then like you wouldn't think it's the same guy that's uh, yeah. this preacher in here in this movie. He plays it very naturally, very humbly. Yeah, like it's it's you know it's yeah it definitely seems like a holy man. I mean, so he's he's an actor with chops. Yeah, so I and Tarantino for a very long time always had actors from his favorite Scorsese movie. Uh, at least it was at the time, Mean Streets, and Cattell was in that movie. And there's even a scene. And it has to be referenced from uh, Mean Streets. But George Clooney, had get, he breaks a pool cue and he gets up on a table and swings it at a few <laughs> vampires. And it's almost like motion for motion, exactly like Robert De Niro in Mean Streets. <clears throat> yeah. So I'm really thinking that was a, a little reference, a little nod to it. Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you a joke I didn't quite enjoy either. I, it felt too, It felt too sitcom-y for me. Yeah, but uh, it's the scene where uh, Selma Hayek's vampire is talking to. Clooney. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's talking to Clooney about like you know making him her slave, you know, like which is like which it kind of what I figure most of the male vampires in there are. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that sort of the women vampire, the female vampires run the show in this place. Yeah. Uh, and so the men are slaves, you know, and she's talking about how you know she's gonna, she death is too good for him. She's gonna turn him and make him worship her and lick the bottom of her boots, and she's gonna turn him into her dog. And she says, "Welcome to slavery." And he goes, "No thanks. I already had a wife." That was like a bad, one of those bad kind of sexist sitcom jokes. You're right. Which is apparently like was a Clooney ad lib. It was a that yeah. 
that <clears throat> neither Rodriguez nor Tarantino liked, but the studio loved and put it in the trailer, and they couldn't take it out then. <laughs> You're like, well, now people are expecting that terrible line. I totally... Uh... You kind of see that scene, and you're like, oh, was... and even she gets killed right after that uh, line, and it's really wacky because, like, a chandelier impales her, and she turns into CG goo. Yeah, I, I, I know that they turned the blood in this movie green to get past the censors, but it, that kind of disappointed me, too. I want to see, like, it's a vampire movie, man. I want to see some, like, bright red blood going on. I wouldn't have even minded if it was, like, dark, but the green thing, I didn't dig that either, man. Like, I need need blood blood for my vampires. Um, So, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Because if not, I'm going to go to the very end here. um, I will mention, though, that one thing that always sticks out to me as I get older is just the look of the film. It's a beautiful look. And I didn't pay attention, but... I wasn't really aware of this man, but Guillermo Navarro is the DP on this. He's been the DP on every single Guillermo del Toro movie other than Mimic. Really? Yeah, and if you if you look at both, like his movies like this and Hellboy, for instance, you go, wow, these movies look remarkably similar. Or they, they have do. a stylish that, similarity. Now, like it's Guillermo Navarro. Now that you say it, now that you say it, I can't ignore it. It's yeah. very, like, especially in the bar. Mm-hmm. He, he's got a wonderful, like, warm lighting Mm-hmm. And I think depending upon the movie, he can give it a great comic book feel with violence. So, and he really accomplishes that here, especially in the bar sequences. Even even when the, uh, some of the makeups don't look totally natural, they still look alive when he when when put in his you know the frame of his lens. Yeah, like he he's got a great knack for uh, latex people, which I am sure is no easy task. No, no, it's not. I, I remember a, a shot from the Naked Lunch movie, and Peter Weller is doing the commentary. He's like, oh, and it's just a close-up of his eyes. He's like, oh, yeah, Peter Shashinsky lit and flagged this off for nine hours one day, and I just sat in a chair. It's like, Jesus. That's cinematography for you, man. It takes forever to get just the great great shots. And I can't imagine like having pretty complex lighting and doing that with action scenes, how difficult that can be. So... I mean, you look at uh, certain Hong Kong movies, um, and a lot, of, a lot of the action scenes are always lit by like uh, what looks like uh, like fluorescent light bulbs. Those are actually, at least nowadays, those are KinoFlow light bulbs, and those give off a very soft natural light. And those are great for you know if you want to have more dynamic like angles in your shots, especially in an action sequence. And it's a lot quicker and easier to light things with them. So yeah. something with as dynamic as this, I'm sure. It, I'm I'm really glad that Rodriguez was able to get this guy and give this movie such a great dynamic look to it. Because he's the perfect guy for it. He's now directing episodes of uh, the Hannibal Lecter TV show. So I haven't watched it yet. I just saw his name attached to it. So a little. But I, little I but I bet they look great. I bet they do. Yeah. So uh, what were you gonna mention about the ending? Case. Well, I that was actually one of my favorite things. I I enjoy the very ending because you know they, because only a couple characters escape the bar, uh, and they do a pan out to reveal that you know the behind the like that the, the bar as we've seen it is just the top of a giant Aztec pyramid. I love that too. Um, like so so 
the 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 part that's facing where all the truckers and people and and because it's a trucker biker bar and I I figure you know okay vampires they want they want transients that no one will miss mm-hmm. like no one's gonna no one's gonna notice if a trucker or a biker goes missing in Mexico yeah you know it but uh so in the front you see all the trucks and you know bikes that are parked there for the night in the back you see that there's a sheer cliff with a half buried Aztec pyramid, you know, presumably this is where all of our our, our huge vampire colony lives. It's like a landfill uh, of trucks. Yes, yes, they've they've dumped all the evidence of their doings and like into the trench behind the place, and I, I love that. I love that it's like this giant glossy matte painting too. It's just the right like comic book looking image for this drive-in movie. And you know, I I always feel a responsibility when I see. Uh, you know, some kind of a mythological monster in a movie to bring up some of the history there. Uh, just so happened, I've been researching um, Mayan and Aztec mythology lately for something uh, for a project I want to put together. Ooh! So I came across some things that uh, kind of add up here. Uh, again, you know, Tarantino wrote it, so I don't really know if he really had a plan other than just, hey, Aztec vampires, that's cool. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I mean, South America, we, we always think of vampires as being very European. Uh, our images are very European of vampires, but South America and the Aztecs and the Mayans both had vampire-like creatures, which makes sense given their exposure to real-life vampire bats, which live in South America. Now, they have a god called Camazots, and Camazots has the um, body of a man and the head of a bat. Uh, He had a tribe of worshippers that would sacrifice to him as... Aztecs are wont to do, and was also called the spectral bat, and yeah, it's neither here nor there. But um, there are specific legends in regards to the Aztec heroes in their quest in the underworld, where they encountered a place called the House of Bats, and the leaders of these bats is Camazots, mm-hmm. uh, and his name literally means death bat. But so, I mean, in a way, the heroes in this have to survive the House of Bats themselves. I mean, that's an old story. But even more than that, there is a story about um, my. I apologize, my Az, my uh, Yucatan and my Aztec language, <laughs> and my Mayan. It's 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 way worse than my Chinese. <laughs> I think they're called the Chihua Tateo. Uh, the Chihua Tateo are the um, are women in the Aztec culture who have died during childbirth. And in Aztec culture, a woman who dies of childbirth is considered a warrior. Because childbirth is considered a form of battle. So any woman that died during childbirth was considered a fallen warrior and to be honored and respected. They, their spirits, their, their bodies were, you know, were honored, but their spirits were considered to hang out at crossroads and steal kids and seduce men with sexual misconduct and drive them insane. Uh, and they had skeleton faces and eagle claws. So... Hmm. So there's there's some uh, there's some possibilities here that you know they might have drawn from some of these source materials. Well, you're absolutely right because when I looked up this movie, I found there was a listing for a From Dust Till Dawn TV show, and ah. Rodriguez is producing that, and he said that well, yeah, I want to explore the Aztec mythology on oh, the show. Okay. Like he's recast the Gecko Brothers; they're going to be in it again. I guess he's recast pretty much all of the characters, and it's going to be on Rodriguez's TV channel that just debuted. It's like something you can only get on satellite or whatever. It's called El Rey, and El Rey was the town that George Clooney is always trying to get is trying to get to in Mexico. Yeah, and it's 
it's also the name of the uh, of the character in Planet Terror. Yeah, yeah. And El Rey was a town that it's the novel that The Getaway is based on. It may may be called The Getaway, and it was made into the the Peckinpah picture. And that that was the town that uh, I think Steve McQueen and Ally McGraw are trying to get to across the border themselves from uh, California. And yeah, there's a couple of little Peckinpah uh, tributes. There's the what's in Mexico. Mexicans line yeah. that was in uh, the Wild Bunch. Okay. So, and the Wild Bunch uh, just mention of that. I will turn this place into the freaking Wild Bunch. <laughs> Very direct, yes. not subtle. <laughs> not subtle at all. When you brought up the very last shot of the temple, I love that because it gives like kind of like the great like unexplained thing for horror. It's not quite yeah. a sequel setup. It's just that, oh, man, this is, like, a little deeper than we thought, you know. This has been going on for centuries. Yeah, that's kind of cool. This place might have been a brothel at some point when that was more legal, or it might have been this or that, you know, like, it might have... So, yeah, that was just a, a, a great image to end the picture on. Absolutely. And, there, I mean, and also, I kind of just appreciate, uh, you know, in a, well, an American and Mexican co-production, but still, I, I appreciate that... There's a there was a movie even at that time that was willing to uh, look beyond just the uh, tried and true Western creatures to find something else to do with the vampire mythos. Yeah, um, this is probably the best vampire like action movie since uh, Near Dark. Yeah, Those two might be the best, really, if you think about it. I can't think of other vampire action movies <clears throat> other I, than like well, the Blade movies. Or Underworld, or... Yeah, I don't really like Underworld. Th- those are too glossy for my tastes. I, I like the first Blade. Yeah, oh, I, I like a couple of the Blades. We'll talk about them. Yeah, we'll talk about them eventually, but... Oh, and, um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, From Dust to Law, it came out that period, the late 90s. There was this, there was John Carpenter's Vampires and Blade, and they all kind of followed one after the other. And this was, in my opinion, the best of the three. But that was kind of the period where vampires stopped, like, other than Interview with a Vampire... They stopped being something we should be afraid of and started being something that was like that was fun to kill. Uh, but I, I, now I sort of feel like we've sort of replaced that period with zombies, which are even easier fodder yeah. to uh, get uh, behind. Yeah, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie came out a good while before this one. Yeah. And when did, when did the show start? This had to have been uh, around the same time. Yeah. It was the late 90s. It was the late 90s. Yeah. So, I mean, vampires were the cool thing to uh, to murder back then. The cool, I mean, yeah. it, it was a bad time for vampire conservationists. See, I think we went from Nazis to stormtroopers to vampires and now zombies. Yeah. Uh, and and we've always killed robots. Uh, of course. Or ninjas. Or ninjas, yeah. Those poor ninjas. They don't know anything else. <laughs> and... I, you know, would we recommend this movie? I know. I, I do. I do. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, I think more than some of the other movies we've talked about, this one's an acquired taste. Yeah. Um, this, this is a movie that really spoke to my adolescent youth, or <laughs> adolescent youth, my adolescence. Um, you know, there's the Salma Hayek dance, there's, you know, the dancing girls, there's the blood and guts, there's the Tarantino-ness. I was... When I was a teenager, I was so obsessed with like, oh man, such and such mentions this, that goes to Desperado, that goes to True Romance, that goes back to 
Reservoir Dogs. That goes back to Natural Born Killers. Pulp Fiction. You had a, you had a wall full of push pins. Yeah, I was like, like I was, threads. I was like the question, you know. You gotta find all those connections. I, I was, I was just loved, you know, Tarantino uh, back then. You know, when I was like uh, 13, 14, 15 years old. I bet that's a clue that they're making the Vega Brothers movie finally. <laughs> yeah, I had a really good friend uh, growing up with, and we were always talk about the Vega Brothers, and he'd say like. Oh yeah, did you hear about uh, *Inglorious Bastards*? And this was like a good ten years before that movie came out. Yeah. And I remember the first script I ever read online was were like excerpts from the *Kill Bill* script. Me too. So, uh, and I remember like it was a good deal different from what ended up on the screen, thankfully. But it was still exciting. It was still exciting, you know. It was, like, cool to be part of the process. Feel like you're part of the process. And, you know, I was also... That would kill Bill. I'll get to that another day. But that was, like, the perfect story. Me and my kung fu obsession and my Tarantino obsession and those two worlds colliding and exploding, you know. And it's never been the same again. It's never been the same, no. <laughs> but, I mean, now that process, you know, hey, it, that sort of thing now makes Tarantino not make a movie, apparently. So Apparently, yeah. So... I don't know how he felt about uh, the Kill Bill thing. Maybe because the script was so different. And maybe because the internet was still kind of new. Yeah. I mean, if you were a member of the Tarantino archives, like I was. Oh my goodness. Uh, then it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> there was a user named Tarantino is God, and I always wondered if that was Tarantino himself. <laughs> did, did he type you know a lot? <laughs> I probably. I don't remember. This is a while ago. Like, you know, my my movies, yeah. you know, like, uh, I mean, his movies, you know, uh, <laughs> if his, if his signature was a picture of a bunch of women's feet, <laughs> then it was Tarantino. He was a, he was a, the frequent poster of the foot fetish section. I don't <laughs> The old, the sole poster of the foot <laughs> fetish section. The moderator. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about all those, uh, those sexy Uma Thurman feet here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as such you know this is my probably my favorite Robert Rodriguez movie ah see I okay I have I like a lot of Robert Rodriguez movies so I don't I don't know I'll have to I have to rewatch a bunch of them and see where it stacks up on my list so I know that I used to love Sin City and then I didn't love it and I haven't seen it in a long time and now that a new one's coming out later this year we're gonna have to do a Sin City episode oh yeah I, I still, I think I still like that one. I haven't watched it. Talk all, all about Frank Miller. <laughs> Happy to do it. I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a, uh, about mid '90s and pr- and prior, uh, Frank Miller apologist. But I will never forgive what he, the man has become. <laughs> uh, I, I think pretty much everyone's in agreement there. No one can argue <laughs> with that. But uh, as for my recommendation, of the movie, I think it's a, um, I think it's a solid. Fun Z grade uh, horror action movie, and I, and I say that very um, empathetically because I know that's what it that's what it wants to be. Yeah, it doesn't it's not aspiring to anything more, and it's made by people who know exactly what they're making. It's it's not one of those times where like a movie is so bad it's good or so fun because the people have no idea what they've put together. It's the kind of like deliberate badness. But the same kind of deliberate badness that they made with Grindhouse, and the thing is, with that kind of thing, 
very few people outside of Tarantino and Rodriguez can do it and not get on my nerves. Because, you know, after Grindhouse came out, everybody kind of tried to do Grindhouse. Uh, movies, yeah. And so few of them worked. So Almost few of them none worked. of them for me. I, I, feel like, I feel like bad movies, when they're organic and they're made by people who intend to make good movies and just fail, that's more fun than people deliberately trying to make bad movies. But, hey, I mean... It's Rodriguez, it's Tarantino, and maybe the people behind Black Dynamite, you know? Yeah, but that's, there's like, that's there's like you said, the camp that they try their best and they fail in a very entertaining way. There's the people who intentionally make a bad movie, and it's just, you know, the most grating piece of garbage. It becomes too winking and in love with itself. Or like, it, it's, um, I saw something, uh, there's like a, I don't know, one of those Kickstarters... Or one of those types of movies, and I wouldn't give a dime to it personally. But uh, it's some like a, a movie with some like name like Awesome Force Five or something. It's something like that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like yeah. all on green screen. It's like everyone's going. Is it, it's funny because it's so awful on purpose. And then Ben Franklin rides a pterodactyl and eats Hitler. It's about that bad. It, I think there is a Hitler in it, and maybe dinosaurs. Of course there it. are. I, I I don't even know what you're talking about, and I know it's, there are there's like there are these a things. ninja cop. Yeah, like clear. Yeah, see Tarantino and Rodriguez fall more. I don't know. Kind of in the former camp. Well, you can tell that they honestly like the things they're talking about. Like it's the the homages are always pretty loving. They're never like above it all or yeah. But I, yeah, I, I think this is a, a project that ultimately works. I'd recommend it. It's um, just be prepared for that sudden shift in tone. Well, you know, it, I, it there's a sudden shift in you know in the genre, but all of the marketing for the movie was all vampire, vampire, vampire. You know. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, you knew what you were getting into. I yeah. mean, eventually it was gonna. Unless you didn't was... see the poster for it and your friend just popped it in, you had no idea what it was. You know, I don't think it was ever their intention. Just to like pull the rug out from under you. Although you know, I I feel like at this point I don't need to recommend this to anyone just because Tarantino's marquee value alone with you know film nerds is so high yeah. that the fact that he did anything with it is gonna get people in the in the place. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think this movie works better than I think some of his later movies, like Inglorious Bastards. That movie just kind of I I dislike it more every time I see it. I've only watched it once. I, I so really I, liked it the first time I saw it, and then, you know, seeing it subsequent times, like, it's really kind of lost its uh, flavor for me. And I think because it's almost too cartoony for being, like, a World War II movie. I, I don't know, like, I think with a, a vampire crime caper movie, like, it's already cartoony. Right, it's not it's not jumping toward anything else. It, although you know, with Inglorious Bastards, I could make a you could make the case that maybe he's trying to pull like Captain America in the 1930s, punching you know the Emperor of Japan. Yeah, I mean, like it has people murdering Hitler at the end of the movie, and you know, of course that didn't happen, but it it doesn't it doesn't feel as organic is what I'm trying to say as it does here, or Kill Bill. Kill Bill, which was referencing movies that were a little over the top, little little absurd. Well, I, I think I think part of that is you know those are those are projects with much larger sweep 
You know, like they're they're trying to reach for far more. Whereas this movie has kind of low aspirations to just be an entertain like an entertaining ninety minute in and out feature. Whereas, you know, what Tarantino makes anymore are like three almost three hour long indulgence fests. Yeah. <laughs> and he has like this, you know every other scene in especially in Glorious Bastards is just a couple people sitting at a table talking. And then one of them gives something away about their intentions. And then something really violent happens for a couple of seconds. And then that scene ends, and then we go to the very next scene just like it. And, and it don't, gets, I, I, but, I, you know, I think, I think a lot of that is just to show off his dialogue. Because, I mean, that's, honestly, that's the reason anybody really loves his movies, is that he's uh, it got to It change. wasn't exactly for me early on, though. It was like his technique and just um, his subtle use of camera. And like he does a great, he has a great feeling for uh, you know big sweeping shots. And even um, from *Dust Till Dawn* is a great almost Brian De Palma looking shot when they first enter the bar, and you get a great like 360 view of the whole place, starting from George Clooney and then you end on him. So it's it's not just the dialogue, but when the dialogue has just become the focus, it's become a little too. I don't know. It's, it's like it's stretching too hard to be gymnastic or something. It's trying too hard. Well, and I, and I think too, it's just a case of, uh, it's a case of a guy who doesn't really have an editor anymore. Well, I mean, sadly, he really doesn't. Sally Minky no, died, yeah, but sadly, yeah. But um, but I mean, but also, what I really mean by that is that he's reached a level of success and notoriety that he can really put out anything he wants and make it as long as he wants, and they're gonna let it happen. Oh yeah, like, I... and, and people people will still turn up. I mean, I'll still turn up. Could you can you think of anybody I'm else? No, I'm I'm guilty of that. Can you think of anybody else who could make a hundred million dollar movie that is on un, Django Unchained, and it makes you know, and it's as violent as it is, it's as long as it is, and then it makes you know five hundred million dollars. You know. Um. Who, at this point, no. I mean, no, nobody. Who can do no, that? I, I, I can think of people who can make movies like that, but I don't. I can't think of anybody who's as successful at doing it. Yeah. So he's he's in a unique position, and you know, good for him on that. Yeah, he's built up an incredible amount of goodwill. I mean, meanwhile, Robert Rodriguez is still doing projects that are probably a cost about as much money as from *Dust Till Dawn*. Yeah, like I, I think we are not giving. I don't think we're giving enough attention to Robert Rodriguez, and who is the director of this picture. Yeah, and I think I think this is. I don't think this movie would have necessarily been the same way under the directorial hand of Tarantino. No, um, I feel like it, it would have been, well, obviously a lot slower. I think there would have been, the action scenes wouldn't have worked in the more like John Carpenter and Hong Kong way I, the, yeah. that Robert Rodriguez has. Robert Rodriguez was kind of the first guy, I think, in the West to really get Hong Kong movies and bring that style to his action cinema. And it shows in those uh, mariachi movies. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, he's a huge John Woo guy. I mean, we all are. <laughs> Yeah, so that's why we're here. That's why we're here. Yeah, but but I yeah I just think he's I think he's so capable. At you know we talked about you know only Tarantino and Rodriguez can get away with the grindhousey movies, but I I think Rodriguez is just like that's that's his primary interest for for Tarantino. It's like a fun diversion from the other stuff he does, but for Rodriguez, like that's the kind of movie he would make most of the time if you let him get away with it. Mm-hmm. 
Well, with that said, is there anything else you want to add? Um, no, I guess we'll just kind of talk about what's what we're doing next. What we are doing next is what we had promised uh, a while, a little while ago, and mm-hmm. we are about to enter into our Robocopathon. Yes, which, uh, you know, if if you know what uh, Robocop 2, 3, and probably the remake are going to be like, it's kind of the film-watching version of... Uh, what old priests did where they flagellated themselves and just beat themselves. I just looked at an attractive woman, so... I have to pay penance. No, I have to watch RoboCop 2 and 3. <laughs> and uh, those are two uh, Frank Miller projects I will not apologize for. And Frank Miller would actually join you in on that because he hates both of those movies. <laughs> well, let's let's see uh, in a couple weeks if I hate them as much as he does. Yeah. Uh, we will see. Uh, my 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 magic eight ball says outcome likely. <laughs> and then I can't wait for the nice, sleek and cartoony remake. Oh boy! But hey, first we're talking about RoboCop one, so there's some there's still hope. Keep hope alive. Just like Sideshow Bob said to Bart Simpson, "I shall send you to heaven before I will send you to hell." <laughs> With that in mind, folks, I am Casey Mitchum, and I'm Burton Cody. Stay bloody, my friends. Now let's kill that fucking band.